Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. My name is Adam Klingfeld, and I'm the senior rabbi at Beth Am in Los Angeles. And today we're studying Masechet Shabbat, page 105. And my overall topic today is going to be the idea of the Adam Kasher, the kosher or fit person, and how classic rabbinic texts and sources, which we might assume are only focused on one's learning ability, one's mastery of the texts and the biblical sources, those that very culture gave tremendous honor, kavod, to a person whose, quote, only claim to fame was being filled with good deeds and kindness and compassion and empathy. But first, I want to do a very quick review of the full page. And as with nearly every page of Talmud, this page is eclectic. It's filled with topics ranging from weaving, from writing two Zions accidentally as a single chet, uh, naming the length of measurement called a seat, which is the length between one's second and third fingers if you extend them as far as you can, uh, tearing one's clothes in mourning and anger, and the dangers of small sins leading to full apostasy, the identification of a human soul with a Torah scroll, and the honor due to a Talmud scholar. In other words, within this page, we've got a taste of so many of the parts of the rich Talmudic culture that make it an endless source of intellectual satisfaction, uh, and I find spiritual enrichment. enrichment. Towards the top of the page, we have rabbis listing and deciphering acronyms called Rashi Teva in Hebrew. It's within a discussion of whether writing such an acronym or abbreviation or a letter or two within one should be considered the same as writing a letter within a full word. Because in that case, if you do that on Shabbat, you're obligated for the full violation. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan, the Talmud says, on his own authority, says that the word Anochi, or I, which is one of God's names. It's the word that God used to begin the Ten Commandments. Anochi Adonai Lohecha, I am the Lord your God. Uh, Rabbi Yochanan says that that word is not just to be understood as a Hebrew word. It's an abbreviation for the Aramaic phrase, Anochi Nafshi Ktivat Yehavit. I, myself, wrote and gave the Torah. The rabbis attributed the same word, Anochi, to a different Aramaic phrase, Amira Neima Ketiva Yehiva which means a pleasing saying, referring to the Torah, was written and given. As if to say that built into the first word of the Ten Commandments, in Aramaic, of course, is a sense of the pleasing nature of the whole text. Still other rabbis in this section read the word Anochi backwards. Yehiva ketiva ne'emanin amareha, yud kaf nun aleph, which means it was given, it was written, and its words are believed. This abbreviation suggests that from the moment of revelation, the words of Torah were fully embraced. My favorite of all these abbreviations on the page is shared by Rabbi Nachman bar Yitzchak. And let's go back a few weeks in the Torah reading when Yehuda, Judah, is pleading in front of Yosef, before, of course, he knows that it's Yosef, uh, for some leniency after Benjamin is imprisoned. He says to the person who he thinks is the viceroy of Egypt, Man Nadaber, what could we say to you? Man needs Tadak, what could justify us in your eyes? Uh, 
That word nitztadak, justify, Rabbi Nachman reads as an abbreviation. Not a word itself, but shorthand for we are n-nechonim, we're okay. We are tz-tzadikim, we're righteous. We are t-tahorim, pure. We are d-dakim, clean, meritorious. We are k-kadoshim, holy. That word is a abbreviation. What's going on in this section? Do we think that Rabbi Nachman and his colleagues really think that that's what the word means? That's the pshat, the simple meaning of the words? My sense of the rabbi's theology was not that God explicitly invested in those words, or in that word, this expanded meaning, and certainly not in Aramaic, the language that the rabbis were going to speak later. And yet, and within this comment, I think, lies the complexity and the fun, and you might say the confounding nature, and also the endless possibilities of all Torah study, that that meaning is there anyway for us to find and for us to connect with. I want you to think of the word amen. It's from the root aman, meaning belief. When you say amen to a bracha, you're basically saying, I believe in the phrase or blessing that was just said. I'm in. Woot, woot, as it were. But in rabbinic jargon, amen is also an acronym for the words el melech ne'aman, the God who is the believable king. Well, does amen mean that? No. And yes, it's both at the same time. That's inscrutable, and that's delicious. That's part of Talmudic, Talmud's gift to Jewish study. The Talmud goes out of its way in this section that we're studying to say that Rabbi Yochanan made this abbreviation of his own accord, his own authority. He didn't need a source. He simply needed to dive into the text and find meaning that was waiting to be discovered. That, to me, is a gorgeous description of how we imbibe the Torah and make it ours. It's an invitation to dive. The text mean what it means what it says. We have fealty to the simplest reading. And it also simultaneously means what we associate it to mean. This is both a playful exercise, expanding the possible meaning of words, and also a microcosm for the entire enterprise of Jewish study. Our text is layered. It's filled with nuance. In our basic understanding of it, it rejects fanaticism because it eschews a single meaning. Now, yes, our Torah does have an eternality to it. It has an inherent sanctity of its own, but it also has a meaning, and I can't convey this any stronger, which only exists. It only exists once it flows through us, like water through coffee grinds or tea leaves, which pick up the flavor notes and the aromas of the particulars of that particular brew. How extraordinary to think that the Torah, given once, a gift from God, is both inviolable and also changes as it passes from person to person. That's the first gift of this page of Talmud. Jump past a section where Rabban Gamliel interprets a subset of law leniently, which ultimately leads to a stringent application, and it's worth your further investigation as you look at the page. Jump past the idea that the rabbinic concept of melacha, the labor that was prohibited on Shabbat, was intrinsically linked with creation, creation of the world, creation of the Mishkan, so much so that what we might think of as a full labor in real terms wouldn't be considered one halachically if the act were destructive. If you jump past that, we get to a painful section which has deep treasures buried within it. The Talmud is trying to resolve a contradiction in the Mishnah and a Baraita, which is a parallel source from the same era as the Mishnah, about whether one is obligated for violating Shabbat if you tore your garment in mourning. 
that's a standard act of mourning to tear your garment, and you may have experienced that in your life at some point or visiting uh, a shiva house or a funeral. The Mishnah says that one is exempt from the full violation of Shabbat if you did that ripping in mourning. But the Baraita says you are fully liable for that act. Act. How do you resolve that contradiction? The first resolution says that they are talking about different cases. In the Mishnah, you tore when you weren't obligated to tear halachically. You weren't one of the seven obligated mourners. So it wasn't a full productive act. It was just a tear. So therefore, it was a destructive act. You shouldn't have done it, but it's not a full malacha. It's not a full labor, and you're exempt from full violation. But the bright is about a case when you were obligated to tear and therefore, it's a full productive act, meaning you are fulfilling an obligation, and then, ironically, you are obligated for the violation of Shabbat. But then a question is raised. What if in the Mishnah, the case where we are saying you were exempt from the full violation, the case where was one was where one was tearing for the death of an Adam Kasher, a fit and good person? In that case, as another text says, every person is obligated to rend their garments, even if you weren't related to them, and therefore, that ripping of the garment should be considered a full productive act, and therefore something you can't do on Shabbat. Um, the source here is a hard baraita, which first suggests something almost unspeakable, that one's children are taken from you young, so that you will have remorse and repent and find an opportunity to mourn for an Adam Kasher, a fit human being. That's a horrible image. It is rejected, actually, in the Talmud, and it says that one's children were taken from you because you did not mourn for an Adam Kasher. It's a punishment. I need to say to you that there's no way to make this text less painful or significantly less theologically untenable, the idea that God would punish us uh, by the taking away of our children for any circumstances, let alone for not having mourned properly for an Adam Kasher. But I do want to share with you that earlier in the same tractate of Talmud on page 32b, it says that the children in this case were taken because of a different sin listed in the Talmud, whose punishment is that your children die young, God forbid, and that had you only when faced with the opportunity mourned properly for an Adam Kasher, the punishment would have been lifted. The children would have lived. I don't want to justify this text or suggest there's anything, any act that one does or does not do in Judaism for which God would punish you with the taking of your children. But I do want to share with you that deep within this troubling text is an amazing idea. The Adam Kasher, who, if they die, you are obligated to mourn them, even if you're not related to them, in most texts, is not necessarily one who is gadol Torah, one who is studious and knowledgeable and fully immersed in our texts. Rather, he is one who is beyond reproach ethically, civilly, relationally. One who runs after opportunities to do gemilut chasadim, acts of loving kindness. And this is actually codified in the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law and elsewhere. It's actually a wonderful notion that grieving the loss from this world of one who spent his or her life in a way that could never be besmirched gives you great reward. I find in my work as a rabbi, and I teach to those in mourning, that mourning is an opportunity to mourn, but also an opportunity for and a sign of emulation. When we mourn the loss from this world of a particular kind of person, 
we are saying on some level that we wish we could be more like that person. So in this complicated technical section, which admittedly has a painful image in it, dealing with the laws of Shabbat observance, we have a poetic praise of the simplest way to be righteous, not only or necessarily by studying the very text that you and I are now studying, which is wonderful to study, but not the only avenue to righteousness, but by aiming to be kasher, to be kosher, by seeing every person as filled with dignity, by living your life with those good deeds in your heart. May we all live many days to study and to do acts of chesed, and when we die, may we die as an Adam Kasher, a fit person, mourned not only by our family, but by all who knew us, and knew that our lives were filled with the deeds of kindness that are at the core of living Jewish lives, living human lives. Shalom. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.